we really do need to hear from you. Guide us as we uh, step into this time of study. Thank you for our worship so far. Thank you for the opportunity to sing your praises, to be reminded in song about your love and your forgiveness. Thank you that when we worship, it's really a, it is a two-way conversation. We say things and pray things and sing things to you, but God, through your spirit, you can move us and speak to us as well. Would you do that now? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen? Well, this morning we're going to launch into a new series. Uh, it's about what matters most in the world. We get reminded about this sometimes. When a baby is born, it's always so interesting. You know, the parents don't need to take a class to learn or to figure out how to love the child. It just happens. Uh, this instant devotion just comes out of the mom, the new mom, the new dad. And uh, when, when a couple stands on a platform like this and, and they say vows to one another before God and before witnesses, uh, it happens. And uh, when we hear a story about a soldier laying down his or her life for their fellow soldiers, it, it, it happens. Or when you, uh, when you hear about an elderly woman who has dementia, I was just reading something along these lines, being cared for by her husband for many, many years, day after day, year after year. It's happening. When an inner city teacher keeps showing up in her classroom with energy and passion for her students long after the colleagues uh, with whom she, she began, you know, they, they've, they've retired, so to speak. They've moved on. They're just burned out. When a 17-year-old girl in the Philippines who was sex trafficked risks her life to begin again for the sake of her own two-year-old daughter, it's happening. And when a cold heart melts in a marriage that was headed for disaster, and that marriage gets reborn. It's happening. When somebody lies dying in a hospital bed and and they're surrounded by friends and by family, people with whom they've shared life over the years, people that they love and and who love them, it's happening. It's in moments like this that we understand just intuitively that life is about love. Love is real. Love is what matters. Love is the measure of our humanity. Uh, Love is the purpose of our lives. Love is what God asks of us. Somebody wrote the song, you could tell me who. Love is all you need, right? And at the beginning of a new year, you know, it's interesting, people will make New Year's resolutions. I bet a lot of you have some New Year's resolutions. I want to be a better person. And uh, I was thinking about this. What's the one New Year's resolution that if you keep it, you know for sure that you will be pleasing God? You know this for sure. There are many resolutions that you can make and that you could keep, and you could still get life completely wrong. The number one category for New Year's resolutions every year, year after year after year, would be what? To get in better shape, physical shape. In the Bible, the strongest guy who ever... Uh, lived was a guy named Samson, and his life was a train wreck. He, he was in great physical shape, but relationally and spiritually, he was a mess, just a mess. The second most popular category for making resolutions uh, is around the idea of financial well-being. You want to get your finances in shape. And it's uh, so very interesting. Jesus told a story one time about a guy who had his best financial year ever. It was so good, in fact, he decided to build new barns and tear down old ones, but it turns out his life was a mess too, especially spiritually. He didn't love God. He wasn't honoring God. And all of his stuff is now going to go to people 
uh, who he leaves behind because he, he dies. And um, when he dies, he realizes he's been focused on all the wrong stuff. And God actually calls him a fool. One of the few times in Scripture, he's, he's actually referred to as a fool. Uh, people often have goals around career success. The most successful guy around in the early years of Jesus' life was a guy named Herod. In fact, he was so successful, they called him Herod the Great. Yeah. Uh, but Herod was uh, not so great, really, not if you knew him. In fact, nobody liked him. Everybody hated him. He only liked himself. Uh, people will sometimes set educational resolutions. I'm going to get smarter. I'm going to go to school, whatever. But the smartest guy in the Bible was a guy named Solomon. He ended up with a thousand wives. That's not a Phi Beta Kappa move right there. You get the idea. So what is the can't-miss resolution? The Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth there in Greece, and he penned some amazing, amazing words. This is what he said. He said, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels that have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. That's really remarkable. I want to say, when I read that, I go, really? (laughs) Really? Is that true, Paul? Let's put it in our language. Though I tweet like Justin Bieber and have more Facebook friends than the Pope, though I get a BA from CU and an MBA from DU, though I invent Snapchat, Instagram, and Uber, though I have great hair, low body fat, and white teeth, though I end global warming and solve the problems of the Middle East and drive a Hummer that runs on compost, if I don't have love, I gain nothing. Absolutely nothing. Let's put the equation like this. You can have everything. Everything minus love equals nothing. It's just that simple. If I do not have love, I have nothing. And if I have nothing, but I have love, I actually have everything. And that's the truth of it. Now understand, Paul gets this idea about the importance of love, uh, not just out of the sky. He gets it from Jesus. Um, Jesus uh, told us one time that the most important thing in life is love. He said, First of all, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And the second commandment, he said, is like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. Life is about love. And so personally, I have just one resolution this year. I I rarely make resolutions, but um, I decided this year I want to be a more loving person. Uh, By the end of, of this year, I hope that I've practiced enough and made progress in being a more loving person. That's what I want to train to do. And uh, that would be my hope for our church as well. Uh, You know, if your goal is to be more physically fit, probably one of the things you would do is you would join a gym. If your goal is to have, uh, uh, get a management of your finances better, maybe you would uh, talk to an investment firm. If you want uh, more career success, maybe you would get a mentor, maybe you would take some classes, earn a degree, whatever. Uh, If you want to grow in your capacity to love, where should you go? Yeah, you're already there. You should go to a church. I mean, understand the whole purpose of the church is to increase the amount of love in the world. Interestingly, churches get fuzzy on this. Uh, when, and when we do, it becomes very destructive. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy one time these words. He said, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command... Some translations will say teach. 
so that you can command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer. The goal, he says, of this command or teaching is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's interesting, isn't it? The goal of Paul's teaching is love. It is not to know a lot. It's to love a lot. And if I know the whole Bible but I have not love, I am nothing. In fact, knowing can sometimes even be a problem. Uh, Paul again says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, there's nothing wrong with knowledge unless it puffs up, you see. And this can be a real problem for church people. I was asked one time, this is many years ago, I was asked one time by a guy uh, this question, why are churches such jerk factories? That's what he asked me. It's a good question. Understand, it's okay that churches attract jerks, otherwise none of us would be here, right? But we're not supposed to produce them, right? I mean, when we come here, we're supposed to be affected by the character of Christ, the spirit of Christ, and and be changed from a jerk into something more like Jesus. Dallas Willard wrote these words. He said, it is rare to find a church that is practically oriented around Jesus' instruction, love one another as I have loved you. You might think that this would be the primary goal, but it usually turns out otherwise. <laughs> what an interesting observation. What, what a sad observation. So just to clarify, uh, this is our goal. You know, we talk around here about wanting to wholeheartedly follow Jesus and faithfully make Jesus followers so that the kingdom of Jesus can be known everywhere by everyone. That's our mission and vision statement. However, what does that look like? What does the kingdom of Jesus look like? Well, it looks like uh, people being filled up with wanting to love God and love people. That's what it looks like. So this is our goal. And we're launching into this series prompted by a book called The Five Love Languages. But it's about way, way, way more than just a few tips on how to make your relationships better. That's really not what we're doing. You see, this is the great purpose for human existence that we're talking about. And therefore, we as a church want to become a community of abnormally loving persons. Now, that can be interpreted in different ways. But what I mean by abnormally loving persons is that we, we love with such passion and such consistency and such uh, self-sacrificing spirit that it's actually noticed in the world out there. Um, And we want to do this in such a way that the great ones, the really great ones among us, are not the richest, smartest, biggest givers, or most socially smooth. The truly great ones among us are the ones who love. And they love consistently. And part of what that means is that before we even get into this book called The Five Love Languages, we need to talk about the question, what is love? Uh, If we look at uh, Jesus' life and teaching, I would say that to love somebody means that you will their good. To love someone means that you will and you work for them in such a way that they become the best person God made them to be. That's what loving a person is. And so I hope you see that love is not primarily a feeling. It just isn't. And yet that's primarily what our culture thinks it is. It involves feelings. I'm not saying it doesn't involve feelings. Love is not primarily a desire. Uh, It's not primarily a feeling of closeness or being agreeable. Love is not me treating you in such a way that you like me, you see. One problem that we face uh, when it comes to the word love is we use it for so many different things. You know, I, I love ice cream. I love you. I love my child. I love my house. I love my job. I love hot dogs. Uh, What does it mean to love a hot dog? Well, it doesn't mean that I will and am willing to work for the good of the hot dog. In fact, my love for hot dogs means I will selfishly consume and destroy the hot dog. That's what that means. 
So, again, uh, Jesus understood love as a God-powered condition of being in which I will, uh, I will the good of everybody with whom I come into contact. And this concept of love that Jesus had was so revolutionary that his followers actually had to find a word to describe it. There wasn't one that existed. And so they used a Greek word, agape, a word used very, very little in uh, classical Greek. It was only used in one book of the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Uh, It was not particularly well-defined. That's why they chose it. It's almost like Jesus' followers needed a word that they could fill with content to explain the nature of this love that Jesus practiced and that Jesus lived. So they seized on this word agape. And in the New Testament, they use it dozens and dozens of times to express this understanding of love that was given to us by Jesus. This quality of love, it was not a feeling. It wasn't something you could turn on or turn off like a faucet, a water faucet or something. Uh, We will say things, of course, like, well, it's really easy to love this person, but it's very hard to love that person. Jesus didn't use the idea of love that way. His notion was that we are to become loving persons in our character. Uh, He talked about and he demonstrated a condition of being, a condition of character, kind of like being healthy, uh, where I'm so rooted in God's love for me and increasingly free of my own sin. That's what happens. When I get rooted and grounded in the love of God, it changes me and I start to get freed up of my own sin. And let's understand, my own sin is always opposed to love because my own sin is always for me (laughs) and me only, right? But I get so uh, filled up with uh, rooted and grounded in the love of God and freed up from my sin that I'm ready to will the good of any person who comes into my life, regardless of who that person is, regardless of whether they deserve it or not, regardless of how they feel about me or I feel about them. I will love them. In fact, uh, we learn in the Bible that agape love will express itself very differently depending on the condition of the person that I'm loving. If somebody's hungry and I love them with agape love, well, I'm going to try to find a way to feed them. I'll invite them into my home. I'll feed them. I'll do something that will give them food. If somebody's lonely and I love them with agape love, then I'm going to do everything I can to connect with them, to listen to them, to befriend them. If somebody's discouraged and I love them with agape love, I'll try to encourage them. I'll try to cheer them on. I'll try to listen. I'll I'll try to get into their life in such a way that becomes a blessing to them. Uh, But if I'm with my child and my child is a spoiled brat, agape love uh, means that I'm going to discipline this child. That's what that means. And here's where loving people with agape love gets challenging uh, because if I give food to a hungry guy, that hungry guy is probably going to like me or at least appreciate it. If I give attention to someone who's lonely, they're probably going to like me too. But if I give discipline to a spoiled brat, are they going to like me? Probably not. They're not going to like what I'm doing. Uh, they're going to think maybe I'm a jerk. But here's the deal. In order to be a truly agape loving person, I have to be willing to be seen as even an unloving person sometimes. I will need to have a source of love that is so stable it enables me to live in a kind of risky way, in a confrontational way, if I need to be confrontational. You know, I must be rooted in a more secure kind of love than any human being can give me. In a kind of love that only God, in fact, can give. This is why the Apostle Paul says, he's uh, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, and he says, I pray that you being rooted 
and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. This is essential. We can't become agape loving people unless we are rooted and grounded in the love of Christ, which is wide and long and high and deep. When a tree is rooted in good soil, it gets nurtured, it's being fed, uh, it's growing. Paul says, I want this for you. I want your thoughts and your feelings and your actions to be rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. So that way we'll grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. That's agape love right there. Uh, where I will, wor- I will will and I will work for the good of everybody in my life simply because God loves me. And this can only arise out of the conditions that I've been describing. Being rooted in God's love, being freed more and more from my own sin and selfishness because of God's love frees me up to be an agape lover. Agape love is always oriented toward the good of the people that I'm with or that I'm around. And understand too, this kind of love has extraordinary power. Extraordinary power. Often in our day, uh, when we talk about the power of love, we immediately think of um, feelings. And it's, it's certainly true that when you're in love, the feelings are very, very powerful, very strong. But actually to Jesus and then also his followers like John and Paul and Timothy and others, it was the power of agape love that was transformative. It was the power of this selfless love that was revolutionary. That Paul, Paul became, was so prompted, he wrote these words one time. Now think about these words. Love never fails. Are you kidding? I don't really know of anything that doesn't fail. But Paul says love never fails. It always wills the good of others. It never fails. Paul says nothing is able to separate us from the love of God. Well, why? Why, Paul? Why is that true? Because love never fails, you see. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. Man, oh man, we live in a world with tons and tons of evil. It's everywhere. It's in us. It's around us. But Paul says, overcome evil with good. That's exactly what agape love does consistently. It overcomes evil with good. Because it wills the good of others. And so now with this kind of love, this uh, definition of love, agape love before us, we're ready to kind of get into this book a little bit. Uh, some of my remarks will, will be kind of introductory for all of the languages of this book. Uh, if you don't have the book, I'd strongly recommend, if you've never read it, that you get it. Uh, it's a really good book to read, and uh, it, it will help you think about how you receive and how you give love. And, but understand, too, the goal for us is that all of us get better at all five of the love languages that are described in this book. It's not good enough just to know what you're naturally good at. What really is helpful is that we practice getting better at all five love languages because Jesus was the master at these languages. Uh, he, he was great in all five love languages. The core idea of the five love languages is that we all have certain ways that we most readily or most naturally express love and receive love. And to find out your uh, love language, you can actually, if you have the book, you can go to the back of the book. There's a little diagnostic test you can take. It'll help you figure out what your love language is. You can also go online, I think. Yes, there it is. That's the website. Uh, just click on it, and you can go there, and you can take a, a little diagnostic test uh, that will help you figure out what your love languages are. 
Uh, I did this again. I'd done, I had done it many, many years ago. And, and uh, my number one love language, because I know you all want to know this, um, <laughs> uh, my number one love language is physical touch. And my number two, they're almost, almost the same. One's 11, one's 10 in the scoring. Uh, my other one are, are just words of affirmation. And, uh, and so I know that that's naturally where I go. When I want to be loving to someone, I, I try to affirm them or put an arm around them or something of that nature. Um, when, I, when I want to feel love, that's most naturally what, how I want to receive it. That will mean the most to me. That and gifts of money. And uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. Totally kidding. But the, uh, so anyway, for some, people, uh, when you, for some people, you feel loved most when it's expressed through words. Uh, and, and people that through words of affirmation, words of love, words of encouragement, that's, that's how they feel love. That's how they tend to express love. For some, uh, it's spending quality time together. When you hang out with me and you're just there consistently, that quality time thing, that conveys to this person more than anything else that they are loved. For some folks, it's uh, the giving of gifts. They're, they're people who are, this is their love language, they, they give very thoughtful gifts. And they're deeply moved when they receive a thoughtful gift. Uh, it's just how, how it works for them. Some people value acts of service. Serving others is how you most naturally love others. And when somebody serves you, wow, it just lights you up inside. You just feel so loved. Some people express and receive love primarily through physical touch. And that's that idea of a hug, a uh, hand on the shoulder, <coughs> uh, a kiss, whatever it is, uh, uh, just that, that physical touch somehow conveys. You can, you can tell uh, when you've got a child who uh, the physical touch is their love language. They just want to be in your lap, always. That's the, that's the, the place where they just home in, you know, and they just love being there. So you might think about this. What tends to be your natural love language? And in the time that's re- remaining to us this morning, we're going to look at this uh, love language of words, words of affirmation. And there's a wonderful statement from the Apostle Paul on this. He says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. How are you doing on that? You think Paul really meant that? What would that look like for you not to let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth? How much would you have to think before you speak in order to have that be true? Well, you see, in order to love with agape love, I hope you can see it's not a feeling we're talking about. It's more about becoming a different kind of person so that out of the well of who you are, no unwholesome thing is said. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's agape love. Agape love seeks the good of the other person, wants to be helpful for building others up according to their needs, not for my need's sake or for my personal preference. Think about the few key people in your life. (coughs) Excuse me. Maybe it's a friend. Uh, Maybe it's your spouse or it's parents or it could be your children. It could be somebody at work or school. Think of them and ask yourself, what is their primary love language? A lot of times... Uh, you can tell this. It's not that difficult to figure out sometimes. What is the best way that I can communicate love to this person? I'll give you an example. Early on in my parenting, before I knew anything at all about love languages, I just assumed that 
The same words coming from the same parent, in other words, coming from me, would have the same impact on different children of our children. But it didn't work that way at all. I'd go into one room of one child and I'd be tucking him into bed and I'm, oh, I love you so much. <clears throat> I love your, your personality. I love your eyes. I love your hair. I love everything about you. I love you so much. And their eyes would light up. You know, I could tell this was really connecting with this child. It was just a very precious moment. And then I'd finish with that child and I'd go into another bedroom with another child. I'd say exactly the same thing. I love your eyes. I love your personality. I love who God's made you to be. I love everything about you. And that child would say, Daddy, you have something stuck way up in your nose. Totally different response because of different love languages, different wiring, you see. Now, the danger is that because of my words didn't get received in the same way with one child as it did the other, I could be uh, kind of personally hurt by this because I want to feel that sense of intimacy, right? That sense of being close, that sense of connection. But the reality is other expressions of love would be what's most prized by the child who's noticing what's in my nose, okay? For that child at that age, just tickling them or wrestling with them or hugging them would fill up their little tank just as much as words of affirmation would. More so, really. So learning to speak the love language of each child and speaking that language to them instead of just using the love language that means the most to me would have been far more meaningful and impactful for each of my children. Learning to speak the love language of the people close to you you know, what is their love language? I need to get better at speaking that. That can transform your relationships. That can, that can increase your impact for positive things in that person's life in huge ways. Now, when we think of words of affirmation, you know, again, as we talk about these five love languages in the weeks ahead, uh, we're going to try to practice all of these love languages. Why? Because we all need to practice all of these. Not just exercise the one that comes naturally to us. Um, and so this week, your assignment is to practice the, the love language of words of affirmation. Now, this may or may not be your primary love language. It may or may not even be the primary love language of the people uh, in your immediate circle. But it's still important that we grow in our ability to speak this love language because I guarantee you that someone in your circles is most ministered to, encouraged by words of affirmation, right? Uh, Proverbs says this, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Now that's always true. It, it might be true for those of us who where words of affirmation are a primary love language more than some, for others, but it's still always true that a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. The point is the right word at the right time and and the right tone to the right person is like gold. It's just like gold. And all of us can remember some such time in our lives. I was 12 years old. Uh, we lived in Ohio. Uh, my father died. And I was in a, the sixth grade classroom of a teacher named Mr. Pence. And uh, we lived in Ohio, but the funeral of my father was in Indiana. It was about a three-hour drive. And I'll never forget, Mr. Pence uh, drove all the way to the funeral for my dad. And Mr. Pence was one of those really you know, strong disciplinarian teachers, but I had immense respect for him because he didn't discipline harshly or, or badly, uh, uh, and he was just a great teacher, a motivational teacher. 
And uh, here he was at my dad's funeral. And I remember coming back to school for the first time after my father passed away. You know, I'm, I'm 12 years old. I'm, my whole world has kind of been turned upside down. And my mom's talking about us moving back to Indiana from Ohio and where we were living. And, and I just know everything just felt uh, pretty shaky, pretty uncertain. And um, Mr. Pence, uh, my, on my first day back, uh, pulled me at the very beginning of uh, class. I mean, really, class hadn't even started. He pulled me out and took me out in the hallway. And uh, usually that meant you were in trouble <laughs> in this class. But I hadn't done anything, so I was pretty sure I wasn't in trouble. But I'll never forget, he, he took me out in the hallway. He got down on one knee. He put a hand on my shoulder. And he said, I know you miss your dad. But he said, Dwayne, you're going to be just fine. You're a good boy. That's not much, but it was immense in terms of its impact on me. I remember it vividly. It's the right word at the right time in the right tone, to the right person. Man, it was gold in my life. Because I wasn't sure at all that I was going to be just fine. (laughs) But that helped me to believe that. And I would just say this week, pick a person in your life, a friend, someone in your life group, somebody at work, your spouse, a child, And practice this. Work at this. We can all get better at this, you see. Again, even if it's not your primary love language. And just practice paying people meaningful compliments, encouragements, affirmations, right? And and here, I think we can get better at this if we we practice this every day. Just this week, just practice this every day. We can all do this. It has to be honest. It has to be non-manipulative. Paul said, love must be sincere. You can't do this insincerely and expect that it would have any good impact at all. How challenging is that to to let it be sincere? In our world, much of the time, love language is just used to manipulate folks. I'll never forget, I was hired one time to be a waiter. Uh, It didn't last very long, but but I was hired to be a waiter. And in this restaurant, it was kind of a nice restaurant, and they had a sheet of paper in the back for all the waiters and waitresses of words of affirmation. Uh, That's not what they call them. I don't remember what they called them, but these were things we were supposed to say when people would make a choice of the menu. You know, so Ed's in there, and, and he, he chooses the roast beef. Excellent choice, Ed. Excellent choice. And then Lynette looks at it and goes, I'm going to have the soup. Oh, tremendous choice, Lynette. Tremendous choice. And, you know, <laughs> uh, it, it was so phony. You could hear the waiters and waitresses. It didn't matter what you chose. It was phenomenal. It was, oh, it was an insightful choice. And there were like nine of these that we were supposed to use. Totally fake. Totally manipulative. That's not what we're talking about. Think of key people in your life and ask, what is a quality or an action that you've observed in this person that you genuinely appreciate, you genuinely admire this? And then just tell them. Uh, Boy, that is a great color on you. You, you, look, you look terrific. 
Oh, I love the way you just encourage that child. That, that is good parenting. I so appreciate how you labored and served. And many of us, I hope, said this over, over the holidays. How you labored and served. That was a feast. That was delicious. You are a phenomenal cook. Oh, I admire how you're building into your marriage and investing yourself there. Good job. I had someone come to me recently and thank me for just being open. That's what they were thanking me for. They told me you're always sharing about the warts and blemishes of your own family and your own marriage, and that makes me feel better. (laughs) I could take that a lot of ways, but anyhow. And she wanted to know if my family was okay with that. That's what she was asking. She said her family would never be okay with that. And I said, yeah, my family is okay with that. And I thought, you know, I need to tell the people in my family, my wife and my kids and close loved ones, thank you for the generosity of spirit that you bring. For being so open, thank you for that. I I don't feel that I need to pretend when I'm up here or, or anywhere that I've got to pretend that my marriage is something it isn't, that my kids are something they're not, that I'm something that I'm really not. And I, they create that atmosphere. I'm really thankful to them. You know, we have people on staff that are just wicked funny. Uh, they have a wicked funny sense of humor. Uh, they are fun to work with, fun to laugh with, fun to succeed with and even fail with. And I so appreciate getting to work with people that are just such terrific people. They always want to improve. They always want to get better. That's a blessing. It's a huge blessing. Uh, A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. So this week, pick a person in your life. Don't pick too many or you'll burn out. Just pick one person and pay them a compliment, a word of affirmation, a word of appreciation, a word of encouragement every day. Every day. I've picked Holly. She's not here, but that's who I've picked. And I'm going to, uh, that, this is not her primary language of love, so there are other things that speak more deeply in your life, but I'm, I'm going to practice this on her. And um, we'll see how it goes, okay? Each day, it's got to be honest. It's got to be non-manipulative. It has to be humble, too. Let me explain what I mean. Humble means sometimes to be loving, we've got to apologize. I mean, we just have to own our own stuff, our own brokenness, our own selfishness, our own sin. And when we fail each other, we have to seek forgiveness. That's what Jesus says we're supposed to do. Seek forgiveness when you fail each other. Otherwise, there will be no room for compliments. I mean, here's the deal. Compliments must come in the context of problems properly processed. Otherwise, compliments are meaningless. If you said something hurtful, you need to apologize. If you made a joke at someone else's expense, you need to apologize. Paul wrote these words. These are incredible words. They really are. Um, My nose is running. Uh, Thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. I apologize. (laughs) I could do this, but that would be bad, so that's why. Ah, thank you. Thank you, Ami. There we go. (laughs) Great speakers always do this, by the way. Just... Okay, here we go. These are Paul's words. These really are remarkable words. Oh, thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Would everybody please bring me a Kleenex? No, I appreciate it. Thank you. 
He says this. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Just think about those three words. Love is kind. It's always kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. That's agape love. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. It always trusts. It always hopes. It always perseveres. Love never fails. Remember, love of this kind only comes from being rooted and grounded in the love of Jesus. You can't love that way apart from the love of Jesus. The reason love does not boast and does not envy is because it doesn't need to. It's not looking for approval. It's not looking for acceptance. It's already received that irrevocably from, from God, God himself. That's agape love. And understand... Our goal in this is not to just do more loving things. If you just try to do more loving things, you're just going to exhaust yourself. Our goal is to become the kind of person through whom loving actions flow out of our character, the character of Jesus being developed in us. When that happens in us, then agape love flows out from us. Jesus is the master of speaking words of love, encouraging words, Comforting words, challenging words, affirming words. How did he do this with such consistency? It's no coincidence that the first words about love in the Gospel of Mark were not words spoken by Jesus, they were words spoken to Jesus. And Jesus, right after Jesus was baptized, these are the words that the Father speaks. He says, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And here's the point. Before Jesus ever began his public ministry, before any miracles, any teaching, any healing of any kind, Jesus himself was rooted and grounded in the love of his Father. He had learned to listen to the voice of his Father. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You see, before and after every other voice, Jesus heard lots of voices. Some people loved him, some people hated him. Some people wanted to kill him and did. But before and after every voice that he heard, he would listen to the Father's voice. And let me just say, the most important words this week will not be the ones that I say or the ones that you say. They'll be the ones we hear. All of us will hear lots of things this week, good and bad. The question is, will you hear the voice of your Heavenly Father speaking to you? This is a huge question. You see, in the same chapter of Mark, Mark chapter 1, we read this. It says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Do you understand the significance of that? Jesus had this practice of getting away with the Father and talking to him and listening to him. Friends, every day the Father wants you to hear Him say, I love you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. And Jesus went to the cross to demonstrate just how true that is. He's given us this meal so that we'd remember. You know, it's not a coincidence 
that in this meal he uses all five of the love languages. This really struck me as I thought about it. Words of affirmation. This is my body broken for you, he says. Quality time. What is the most quality time that families usually have? Where does that happen, usually? Yeah, meal time. Well, the sacrament that he's given us is a meal, for goodness sake. Come feast with me. Sit down with me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember how I love you. And let's remember this around a meal together. Quality time. Receiving gifts. What is symbolized on the table is the greatest gift you could ever receive. Jesus dying on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. Physical touch. Here's a sacrament where you have physical touch. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you, you see. Acts of service. Well, what's displayed on this table are the greatest acts of service you will ever see. And I uh, asked uh, one of the gentlemen to bring us the bread. And uh, so we have the privilege of coming to this table this morning. And we have the privilege of hearing from God words of love that are literally expressed in all five love languages. I don't know which love language is yours. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. But just think about it. Jesus was thinking of you when he instituted this sacrament. Uh, He was thinking of you and me. He put something in this sacrament that speaks to your primary love language. That's how he loves you. That's remarkable. Why would this God even care? But he does. It's remarkable to me. And um, in the upper room, Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then he invites us to the table. Quality time. Come to the table. Feast on me. Be nourished. Be spiritually well fed. Be encouraged. Be affirmed. Know that I love you. Know that I'm coming back. We really have one prerequisite for people to come to this table, and that is that you have faith in Jesus. It's appropriate that if you have faith in Jesus and you're trusting in him alone, for your salvation, that you partake of this meal. If you don't know Jesus, if that's a decision that you haven't made, you haven't crossed that line yet, then uh, it'd be best if you not partake in this meal uh, because the only right way to partake is by faith. And so parents with children too, if you've got children here, you know, it's appropriate for them to partake if, they, if you know they have faith in Jesus. If they don't, just teach them what this symbolizes. Talk to them about that. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, we'll have the folks come up who are going to serve us, and uh, there'll be three stations, one right here, there'll be one right here, and there'll be one over there in the corner, and you'll get up out of your seats and go to your left and come to the station.